Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and e-books online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. All right. Good morning, everybody. Whether or not you're listening to this in the morning, it's early in the morning when I'm recording this and the goats are just going out for their walk. You might hear a rooster because they haven't figured out, well, perfect timing. (laughs) They haven't figured out that everybody else is awake. But anyway, I'm very excited because my guest today, Ziggy Liloya from the Year of Mud, has been building naturally and blogging about his experiences for a decade since he started with a small cob cottage just over 200 square feet at an eco-village in Missouri back in 2008. Now since then he has explored many other materials and techniques and joins us today to talk about the myths and realities of natural building, especially when it comes to costs, climate appropriate design, and labor considerations. Now, in this interview, Ziggy and I discuss some of the mistakes and learning experiences that have informed the way we design and assess appropriate materials. We talk about the importance of understanding the differences between thermal mass and insulation, and Ziggy also goes into detail about timber framing and charring wood for aesthetic purposes and to preserve the lumber for longer. This is a great episode for anyone looking to get a better understanding about the costs and realities of building with natural materials. And if anybody wants to see this laid out in a simpler format or easy to read along, you can also check out the articles page on the Abundant Edge website where I have an article specifically about the costs and consideration and myth-busting natural building. So grab your notebook and I'll turn things over now to Ziggy. 
Hey, Ziggy, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us here today. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on board and finding some time to chat. Hey, my pleasure. I have been following you guys for years since you first started building uh, your original Cobb House back in Missouri. So this is really special to finally get to speak to you. I mean, not in person, but at least over the Internet. For sure. Yeah. And I, I totally appreciate you following along for that long. It's always really amusing to me when I run across people that have actually kind of followed the whole story for that long now because it's been been quite a while it feels like and a lot has happened since then too so it certainly has and so for our listeners who haven't been following you as long as i have um how would you give us a little bit of a description of your background and how you got started in natural building well um I approached natural building in my early 20s. When when I graduated from college, I uh, soon after moved to an intentional community in rural Missouri called Dancing Rabbit Eco Village. And it was there that I learned about natural building and had an opportunity to do some of it firsthand. So prior to that time, I didn't have really any exposure to the idea of natural building or really building of any kind. I didn't grow up doing construction. I didn't have any kind of background like that. So it, for me, was kind of a, I guess you could say, jumping into the deep end and uh, really taking a big interest right from the get-go once I had the opportunity to work uh, with some of the materials firsthand. And um, since then, I've gone on to do a lot more building, but it was originally there in Missouri where I, um, you know, made some friends, community members who were building and just sort of got experience as I went along. Fantastic. So with all of the different natural building methods available out there, what helped you decide to build your first structure out of Cobb and how did you get that training? Well, <laughs> from the get-go, it was a terrible decision, but we'll probably get to that later. Um, at the time, this was, I guess, let's see, 2007, 2008, which doesn't sound like a long time ago, but I feel like in the world of natural building, even a lot has changed since then in the way that um, information is available and information is communicated, the, the literature available, etc., um, so originally the appeal for me was for one, the, the, the cost, the perceived cost being very low and the accessibility. Cause as I said earlier, I didn't have any carpentry experience, any real construction experience of any kind. And it seemed like, well, this was pretty straightforward. I should probably look into doing this because I don't have the skills, I don't have the financial resources to do something more complicated. So I was definitely approaching it from that angle, but <laughs> approaching it from that angle definitely ignored uh, quite a few other important aspects of Cobb as a building material, especially in that climate. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's something that always comes up, especially in the courses that I teach as well, and that's selecting the correct material for your climate and context. So let's break down the steps that you went through as you were evaluating the materials that you had on hand. Like you said, you were attracted to it because of the accessibility and the perceived low budget. Um, 
tell us a little bit about the structure itself, kind of the dimensions and what it included, and some of the main things that you learned while building it. Well, this was a very, very basic building. It was under, well, around, say, 200 square feet. Um, basically, it was a bedroom, a glorified bedroom. There was no kitchen, no bathroom, no even electric uh, facilities or functions. So it was a really, really simple building. And uh, that kind of reflected my, for one, the need at the time. I, I didn't necessarily need those features because they were available in other uh, community facilities. And also at the time, you know, my kind of sky high idealism that I was going to live without electricity in my house and try to do everything, you know, as, <laughs> as basically as possible. Um, so that the the form of the house, the functions of the house were all very, very, very simple. Um, and the what was your other question? Remind Sorry me. <laughs> about that. What were some of the things that you learned in that process that kind of gave you a different perspective on these things that you talked about, both the budget, the accessibility, and what it really kind of means to live comfortably within those parameters? Sure. So a little bit more about how I came to the decision to build a Cobb house. Um, I, of course, had the copy of uh, a copy of the hand sculpted house and, um, you know, followed along uh, the work of the Cobb Cottage Company. And there were some buildings at Dancing Rabbit that were in Cobb but didn't weren't built out of Cobb exclusively. And honestly, at the time, I got some bad advice about, oh, you know, as long as you have a big enough heat source, it'll be fine. Cobb will, you know, be an appropriate building material. And because it's so small, it should be easy to heat. Well, not really true. (laughs) As I later learned through the process of not just building it, but then, of course, living in it was really the true lesson, um, you know, of the whole experience, you know, really coming to understand uh, the just massive fundamental differences between a a massive wall system and an insulated wall system. And now it seems like this is so obvious to me. Why was it ever, you know, a question then? But again, given the time, the place, some of the information I was getting, you know, things happen, but <laughs> well, that's super understandable. Say, <laughs> on so right. many of the forums that I check out, there is a constant misunderstanding of the difference between thermal mass and insulative materials and where they're most appropriate. It's one of the most common misconceptions that I find out there. Right. I still get emails to this day from people saying, oh, I live in northern Illinois. I live in Michigan and I want to build a Cobb house. I'd love to get some advice. And the very first thing I say is, "Okay, hold on. First of all, you shouldn't even be considering Cobb. And here's here's why. And I like, you know, I'm fine to kind of burst their bubble early on because it's it's critical from the get go that people have that sort of foundational knowledge of you know, the materials and their qualities so that they don't make some of these mistakes that I have made and other people made because they're just not necessary to make. There's a lot of hardship that can come about from making some really poor fundamental uh, material choices. And I really, at this point, you know, advocate for people, 
you know, just kind of learning, learning about the, the basics and, and using that to guide their decision-making process more so than, oh, they look so cool. Well, right. you know, there's so many other ways to achieve that, that look with more appropriate materials, right? So Definitely. there's, you know, there's a lot more to it than just the, the material that is the wall itself. Absolutely. One of the kind of references that I always refer to when people ask me about building naturally in cold climates is the way Siggy Coco does as she works a lot on the East Coast, um, mostly kind of the uh, the northern like that. What do they call it? The Eastern Corridor there where the, <laughs> all the population centers are. And that gets freezing sure. cold. And she's had a right. fantastic career of both building with cob and predominantly straw bale for at least the outer envelope of the house. Right. And the combination of the two can be made extremely efficient because if you get solar gain coming through well-insulated uh, walls, through the windows, obviously, then you can start to heat up the thermal mass of your earthen materials, either an earthen floor, some cob banks, some cob furniture, and that heat is stored in there and can't get back out because of the heavy insulation of the straw bales. And I've seen a lot of very effective structures being put up that way. But again, it requires some understanding of your context, your place, your necessities as a resident, and a full evaluation of what's going to be most appropriate for those parameters. Exactly. There's so many, so many factors that go into considering the design and, you know, selecting for not just materials, but, you know, layout, window placement, all these things are going to be really unique to people's individual needs. And then, you know, the, the sort of parameters of their climate. So it's, it's really hard to make, sort of blanket suggestions to people. Um, and I, 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 I personally try to avoid that. Well, especially when you start to consider the microclimates that someone might have on their site, which really throws off the metrics that they're taking over the broader aspect of the climate that they live in. Um, if you're on like the north side of a slope on a hill and don't get a lot of direct sunlight, no matter where you are on the latitude of your site, you might not be getting the solar gain that you need to make passive solar effective. For example, that's just one potential, um, you know, way that that could throw things off. Exactly. Yeah. Where I, where I live here in Kentucky in the Valley, I I'm blessed with a lot of sunshine with how our uh, land is situated, but you know, you go half a mile or less down the road to some of our friends homesteads where there's a lot more tree coverage and it's a completely different situation you would never build you know the identical house in those two locations they're so different even though they're in the same region they're even in the same valley but the locations are so vastly different yeah, that's such an important consideration. And it's one of the reasons why I've always been fascinated and had a good time with these types of projects, because there's just no two that are the same, especially when you start designing appropriately for your ecology and your site. And, you know, that's where permaculture assessments really have helped me out in making better decisions when it comes to buildings. No doubt. So talk to me a little bit more about 
since learning all those lessons on your initial building, which, you know, is absolutely essential. And you and I both teach a lot from our own mistakes and our learning experiences along this journey. Tell me about some of the other things that you've explored uh, as far as natural building materials and techniques. Sure. Um, Since that first house, I've gone on to build with straw bales, you know, being a kind of obvious um, you know, second, not second, but a, a, another obvious material choice, especially uh, where I was formerly living there in Missouri, it being a, you know, very abundant building material. And, you know, like I said, much more appropriate to that climate. Um, so the second major project that I did was a, a straw bale insulated timber frame house. And that was you know, a whole nother series of, of, uh, learning lessons. And I feel like ultimately through this whole, um, you know, adventure of natural building process of natural building, it's just a a constant learning lesson. And I feel like that's really appealing and, um, you know, very fulfilling because I feel like no matter what, there's always something else to learn, always something else to understand and, and better, you know, appreciate. And every project that I've done, you know, over the years has been an opportunity to, you know, understand the materials better, understand design better, just really getting a better handle or more um, full-fledged picture of the whole process that is building because it's you know it's complicated it entails a lot and it's you know keeps you on your toes when you know there's there's no point at which you're you're basically done okay i know everything i don't think that really happens no i agree in fact it feels like just the opposite the the longer time goes on it feels like i don't really know much at all sometimes it's like what do i know i found (laughs) a lot of things are like that definitely uh building is a great example the deeper you go the more you realize that you have to learn and the intricacies and the nuances um, that could make your your knowledge much more robust definitely the same with gardening and permaculture landscaping like we do at the business here i've even found that with traveling like the more that i've gone to travel the more like oh man i haven't seen a fraction of the world i gotta get out there more right (laughs) it's amazing when you think about it it really is so Having experienced a f- and, and tried out a handful of other types of natural building materials, especially those that are more perhaps more appropriate to your site and your climate, I know that you really focus on the practicalities and dispelling the myths and the bad information that many people get around natural building. And this is something that I'm very passionate about too, because I think you and I both have a lot of clients or potential clients coming to us with initial questions that are obviously just poorly informed from bad information out there on the internet or, you know, wherever they might be getting, uh, yeah, their information on how to proceed. Can you talk about some of the more common misconceptions or um, evidence of poor information out there that you hear most often? Uh, Frankly, the the biggest one is is that difference between thermal mass and insulation i feel like that just comes up constantly and it's um you know always an opportunity to to uh shed light and help educate when someone does show confusion around you know 
building with cob in a cold place or why would you use straw bales over cob? So I feel like a lot of it stems from that. Um, and I feel like secondarily there's sometimes either misunderstanding or, um, lack of really good information on sort of the limitations of certain materials. You know, clay is often touted as, you know, a really amazing material, which it is not going to deny it, but it also has limitations too. It's not like just going to do everything you want it to do. For example, it's not going to be necessarily the most protective uh, finish on an exterior wall. And sometimes it, you know, it's, it sounds like really simple in hindsight, but when you're, you know, just kind of starting off, you need kind of that, um, you know, blueprint or the, that information presented to you in a way that's understandable. So you can at least appreciate that certain materials have certain, um, you know, certain, they excel in certain ways and, and don't do well in other ways. And it's, sometimes it's, it's can be hard to appreciate or understand that when you're just, you know, starting from, from very little. Yeah, I agree. I really wish that there were some better resources out there to really compare and contrast the the myriad different types of materials that are available that we would still consider within natural building. Because especially as people are starting to mix them with other things, I'm hearing uh, options like hempcrete and other types right. of hybrid materials. Um, it, I, I haven't seen any resource out there yet to compare and contrast them in a way that's easy to digest for the layperson, I've seen a lot of like engineering stats, right. but I mean, I studied engineering and I can't make heads or tails of half of them. So, um, you know, if anybody's working on that out there or, you know, wants some help or some support, that's definitely a resource that this community could, could make a lot of use of. Absolutely. So what about pricing? I know that this is one of the misconceptions that I deal with all the time because there are so many posts on Instagram and Facebook and, and uh, people's blogs about having built a perfectly adequate structure for only a couple of thousand dollars. How is that misrepresenting the reality, especially of having a natural building contracted for you? Yeah, it's it's kind of a big disservice to see, um, you know, a, a proliferation of articles or posts about, you know, oh, this house only costs a thousand dollars or, you know, whatever the, the title may be, um, because frankly, it's it's not the whole picture. Um, and especially, especially true for people that either don't have the skill or ability to build for themselves, you're never going to have a house built for yourself that is going to, you know, clock in at such a low number, unless it's literally like a closet, which I don't think anyone really wants to live in a closet. But the thing that I think is primarily a source, at least a source of misunderstanding is the the labor cost. You know, the, the material cost may not be, so high in certain cases for example you know straw bales in my neighborhood here are 350 a bale which is very cheap you know it's that very affordable good. but you know to install those bales in a you know a professional way takes a lot of money because the labor is for one not 
very available and it's specialized and it might require people coming in from a distance because certain regions don't have a lot of um, you know skilled craftspeople or tradespeople. So it can get expensive pretty quickly when you're you know when you're um, racking up labor. So I think it's really important to um, convey that to people and even to people who want to build for themselves. You know, building is, of course, not just, um, you know, an expense in terms of dollars, but it's an opportunity cost. It takes, even if you're planning on building for yourself, it takes so much labor. So that just means that's that much less time you can do on, on other things. So you really need to be able to um, appreciate and understand just how much labor it really is to build a home with natural materials and, you know, either uh, being able to or okay with the cost of hiring people or it taking a long time uh, of your own time and thus, you know, limiting your abilities to do other stuff in short. So I, I feel like that's kind of at the root of a lot of the misunderstanding and you know it's not it's not the kind of thing that's like necessarily always easily conveyed to people and it's not frankly what people want to hear either of course no so it does kind of like, shatter some people's <laughs> dreams sometimes and it's unfortunate it and my heart goes out to them i've been through this process myself both building for myself and for clients um, but i really love that you touched on some of the two most important things right there which is though the the material cost itself might be pretty low. You might be fortunate enough to be excavating, say, clay soil or be harvesting trees from, from a forest. That's great. But again, it's often made up for that difference in cost by the labor required to process it. And though, right. you know, the processing is much more minimal than, say, turning <laughs> clinker into cement, for example, doesn't require all the machinery and the fossil fuels. Um, if you're not paying machines, you're paying people. And certainly in the United States, those labor rates are quite a bit higher. We're fortunate to be in a region of Guatemala where labor is extremely cheap, in fact, way too cheap for the skill and the hardworking right. locals around here. And we do our best to pay well above average wages. Um, but it is definitely a factor. And what people don't understand about, especially kind of traditional or vernacular building styles, I think, is that they were developed at a time where there wasn't such a separation of, of, um, of labor. And people all pitched in in a community to get a building done. And so you didn't directly pay for that labor. You just paid it forward when you went and built their house for them as well. And so... When it's considered in the same context with the modern economy where you have specialists that just kind of do one thing and have to demand, uh, you know, proper wages for it, it throws off the context and it makes it look like natural building is not really competitive in a modern economy with industrial materials. I mean... <clears throat> For me personally, it's been quite a challenge to convince, especially the local community around here, that natural buildings are of higher quality and standard when cement blocks are dirt cheap, partly due to, you know, um, offsetting the cost by not taking responsibility for the environmental impact, but also government subsidies and things like that as well, which really skew the playing field and give kind of a very inaccurate 
uh, overview of the the contrast between these these styles of building. Right. And I'm, I'm also, this is somewhat related to, I'm also personally interested in, um, you know, how to make natural building more accessible so that it's not limited to just people with the, you know, financial means to, to pay for it because it's, it's such a cruel irony in some ways that this way of building, you know, using naturally available uh, or locally available natural materials, it's it, it's it should not be limited to a, a certain class of individual that can afford it. It should be much more accessible than that. And it's so frustrating to me personally when I see these you know massive sprawling natural buildings that are kind of counter to the at least my ideas of what <laughs> what it should represent and. I would so much more appreciate um, it being more accessible to the, you know, average individual or, or individual that, you know, might not have a whole lot of financial means because these are the people that would truly benefit from, you know, living in a, in a high quality, you know, high efficiency type of home. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know about how you're doing it with uh, your company, but our approach here has been, look, we have to charge these prices in order to design and consult for clients and just in order to make it feasible for us to spend that time on their projects. But then we offer trainings and uh, especially scholarships for locals in our community who would otherwise not be able to afford the tuition. And so for just about every person that pays full tuition in the courses that we give, we give scholarships to to some member of the local community. And that way, you know, as it was intended, these natural building techniques are something that you can chip away at over a longer period of time. And it's definitely an investment in the future, um, though it might not cost a whole lot out of pocket. It will cost quite a bit in time if you're looking to save money overall on the project. But that's something that is definitely more available in these communities here where agriculture is still one of the main economic drivers. And so in the off season when they're not harvesting and such, I have fortunately seen quite a few of our former students take on small projects and and eventually get more ambitious with it. So I'm hoping that this balance um, where we build more ambitious things for clients who can afford it kind of give an example of what someone might be able to aspire to. And if they're willing to take the trainings and put in the work themselves, they could achieve something of similar, if not uh, exactly the same quality. It's just going to take them a little longer. Right. Yeah, I think that's great. I think it's, I I like what you said about, you know, offering, um, you know, scholarships, to, to individuals that have have that need and I, I think there's you know other ways to be creative too and not that I've necessarily found all those ways but I would really love to uh, you know be able to think about that more and incorporate more of those ideas so that it so that you know all types of people can um, have this experience and, and gain these skills. 
Yeah, I think that's definitely the overall goal. Although the pragmatism in the meantime sometimes uh, means that we have to compromise on just blazing forward with that, like you know, social uh, charity model in some in some respects. But um, also the context of where you live and where I live are quite starkly different. I'm in a small Mayan community in the highlands of Guatemala, and you're in basically the Midwest of the United States, right? Uh, southeast now, Kentucky, but yeah, it's vastly Is that considered different, southeast? I, I, I always kind of consider that well, like right on the edge. I, I kind of consider it on the edge too, not being, I, you know, I'm originally from New Jersey, so it's, it's strange right. to consider Kentucky being in the south because it feels like it's on the line to me. Because I always think, yeah, I if you go say? one state up to Ohio, like that's definitely Midwest. And I grew up in the Midwest, so maybe I'm just trying to steal some of the good states for our <laughs> for our region. <laughs> I would love for someone to tell me <laughs> where we are. <laughs> yeah, I'm not the person to ask. I've been out of the states for too long. Um, <laughs> Appalachia, I would say. <laughs> there you go. That's a good region to lump it into. So, uh, yeah. With all the experience that you've had for running trainings and different workshops at this point, what are some of the commonalities and the most important things that you would like to get uh, communicated through to students and potentially our listeners here on this podcast? That's a really good question. Gosh, um, I feel like part of the just speaking to the workshops now in particular part of why so many people have a positive experience isn't always just about the the um you know the material of the class meaning like what we're talking about and doing so much as the the social experience too the social experience is such a huge component of it and it's actually really difficult to convey that to people and you know promoting and advertising these classes like how significant uh, that is to the experience, but so often I hear from people who have uh, who are here or have left and written me that you know, wow, what an amazing you know community you live in, and what an amazing community we had for the duration of the workshop. It's it's amazing how frequent that uh, sentiment comes up, and I I think there's something to be said for that, um, and. You know, I just, yeah, beyond just the, um, you know, basics of like how to make plaster or how to, you know, build an oven. It's it's so much more than that. And I feel like natural materials are kind of an, uh, have, yeah, they're, they're for one, accessible. And because they're labor intensive, because so much of it is tactile and not necessarily machine-based. There's so many opportunities for people to connect while working and, and creating something together. So I just really appreciate that. And it's frankly, for me, one of the reasons to keep doing it um, is that you know community aspect of building together. I love that you mentioned that. And that's something that really resonates with me as well. I'm kind of an introverted person and I don't make a huge effort to get out to social gatherings nearly as often as I should. But <laughs> I mean, traditionally, building was a social event. And like I mentioned earlier, the reason why uh, natural buildings have 
become something that's out of reach for a lot of people is because we have this disconnect from the community. And traditionally, they were done as a community and everybody pitched in with the building projects of their neighbors or, or people on the other side. And to be able to kind of foster that again, even if just in a workshop setting and, and show people that it doesn't have to be something that you know, causes complaints of noise ordinances and like you have to worry about waking <laughs> up with a bunch of like jackhammers and machinery and stuff next to your house. Um, you can go a little bit slower. You can make this a human scale type of uh, endeavor and actually have some fun and connect with your community in the process is really powerful. And quite frankly, that's where I see most people connecting during the workshops. They may leave with some practical building experience and knowledge, but definitely the memories that are made come from the connections of the people and the stories that are told in the process, in, in my experience. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I feel like it's, it's hard to necessarily convey that before people are, you know, present and participating, but it's, it's, uh, it's always, you know, within the first few days, you kind of see those connections being made and those, you know, that really positive social, social energy, um, starting to happen. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's huge. It's, it's huge. It really is. So let's switch gears just a little bit here and talk about some of the things that you've been exploring in your courses and your own buildings lately. I've seen you doing a lot of work with timber framing and especially a technique that I know comes from Japan. And I always forget the word or how it's pronounced, but it's when you uh, char the outside of the wood and then oil it so that it preserves the wood for a longer time. Could you describe that process a little? Sure. Um, the I hope I don't botch the pronunciation myself, but I, I believe it is pronounced shosugiban, or another alternate name is yakisugi. Um, both of those essentially translate to charred cedar, which would have been the the material of choice for for doing this particular preservation method in Japan. And I want to clarify before I go any further that I'm not necessarily an expert on this subject. I've mostly learned about it through you know my own research on the internet and elsewhere. But what I do know is that it's not necessarily specific to Japan, but Japan is known for you know its use of this particular material. And basically, what you do is it's kind of counterintuitive, but you basically burn or torch your uh, wood, either in the form of your uh, timbers or siding or what have you, and uh, wire brush it and then um, apply a coat of oil. And essentially what that does is uh, make the wood much, much more resistant to both moisture damage and insect damage and uh, essentially adds to the longevity of the material. So there's a certain you know, energy input in you know, burning the material and, and um, doing the preservation, but the end result is something that will last a really long time. And I just recently experimented with this on the small timber frame we're building that we started in our workshop this summer. And the transformation is quite dramatic. We we did it mostly for aesthetic reasons. Uh, it being white oak that we use, white oak is already very uh, long lived and has a lot of rot resistance. But 
the look you can achieve is is very very dramatic and very very beautiful and it's um i mean i just think it looks amazing no i agree it's <laughs> so stunning. it's been really fun to experiment with and um yeah and finally do on a on a project so it's it's yeah very rewarding to see it Nice. And like you mentioned, I have seen that technique used in other parts of the world, including um, earthen covered roofs in Iceland. And I'm not sure if that goes back very far or if it was something that was, you know, imported recently. Um, But I think, at least from what I've heard, it can also have a dramatic impact on how fast the wood burns, which is very counterintuitive since it's sort of pre-burned on the surface. I did forget to mention that it, it is supposed to increase the um, fire resistance too, or the something. I saw something even more technical than that. Something about the the burn time, but I guess ultimately it it, it makes it in some ways more fire resistant, which is yeah, very kind of counterintuitive. But it makes sense because it's it's charred, so it's not going to ignite as quickly once it is charred right sort of pre-burning it to prevent it from burning a second time (laughs) it's pretty cool nice well yeah it is very cool i really appreciate you kind of clearing some of that up and giving us some more information on that technique before i let you go could you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you and if you have any new uh, educational opportunities coming up Sure. Um, my website can be found at theyearofmud.com. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Year of Mud. And the website is the place to find um, current and upcoming classes. We finished our 2008, or sorry, 2018 building season. And over the next couple months, <clears throat> we'll be posting a schedule for 2019 classes and also on the website you'll find um my blog which is 10 years old at this point and has entries dating all the way back to that first cob house that i built and to the present day doing this um you know little timber frame building and other projects so yeah there's a whole bunch of stuff to explore on the website itself and there's a contact form for for emailing me if you have any questions and things like that too nice fantastic well ziggy thank you so much for making the time today it was such a pleasure to finally talk to you after following your work for so long um i really hope that we can do a follow-up sometime perhaps in a later season i'd love to keep uh, in touch with all the cool new stuff that you're trying out as well yeah thanks a lot i really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show Hey, my pleasure. All right, I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, talk to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. 
For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.